these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Where did those ideas come from? Are they some patriotic speech that was written to make people happy? Those ideas truly came from studying the Word of God, finding that God created all people in His image to make us equal, that God Himself is the giver of life and no other person has the right to take that life away lightly, that we have been given the responsibility to serve our Lord and Father and that in that is our joy. The ideas of liberty that America was founded on, those ideas come not from the minds of philosophers or even patriots, but it, it truly does come from the mind of God. That was the basis for our nation. Now, democracy itself, many founding fathers have pointed out that it cannot exist in a nation that is not Christian uh, and, and that is not moral. And we can see as the moral fiber of America decays, so does the strength of democracy itself. Democracy is based on the idea that people are going to do what is right and do what is good. Um, and if, as we see people beginning to seek, or not beginning, but full-fledged seeking after their own and what is best for them and not what is best for the country, it begins to fall. Several years ago, um, I saw on a Facebook website or Facebook page that a gentleman was going to um, preach, and, and he was going to preach as a guest at another church. And he walked into that church the day before, and they had a flag up in their uh, sanctuary. And he asked the Facebook group, should I ask them to remove that, or should I just ignore it? Now, the responses and everything was just kind of ridiculous, but it, it opened my eyes to the fact that there is a large group of people that you might not expect that actually hate our country. Now, God gave us this country. It is a country of freedom. And if you don't believe um, that, that this country is the best country to be a Christian in, find out what it's like to be a Christian in the Middle East. Find out what it's like to be a Christian in the Far East. It, it is very different. Now, are we as Christians, um, do we expect or do we feel entitled to be exempt from persecution? Absolutely not. But we do have a place here and now that is free and is free of persecution or at least as free as it can be at this moment. And it is worth fighting for. The reality is this fight for freedom, this fight for liberty, um, this fight for religious liberty, which was one of the very founding principles of this country, that is a fight worth fighting. It is worth fighting to be able to worship God the way that God leads us to worship him, not the way that people say we must. And that brings us to our passage this morning. Much of our lives are conflict, whether we know it or not. From the very tiny, small things where your body, its marvelous immune system is constantly fighting off diseases that, that you don't even know about, or to the larger things where we fight against forces that are unseen constantly. And as Christians, those battles have eternal consequences. 
Jesus' ministry is marked by a battle that he had with elite religious leaders. Um, and, and this group that was just entrenched there in Judea, ruling that area, they fought against Jesus and, and they attempted to discredit him. They attempted to silence him. Um, and everything kind of began when Jesus went into the temple and cleansed it. When he went into the court of the Gentiles and he ran off the animals and he told the bird sellers to go away and, and, and and turned over the tables of the money changers. That was kind of the first shot fired in this battle. Um, and, and a few chapters ago, that was where we saw that. Um, this would lead to several encounters, and this is one we're going to be looking at this morning. There's one of those encounters where Jesus fights against those religious leaders, um, and he pushes back on them because they challenge him. They challenge who he is. They challenge his authority, and he pushes back. So Jesus actually joins this battle, so to speak. The battle is joined to fight for what he is, is, is bringing, a, a new freedom and a new message that Jesus is bringing that the people could not quite understand, and certainly they didn't grasp it early on. So, the sermon in a sentence is this. Those who reject Jesus do not do so for lack of evidence, but rather due to a stubborn and prideful heart. So that's what we're going to see in these leaders, these Jews that stood against Jesus, is a stubborn and prideful heart. Um, not that they didn't know, but that they refused to believe. So we're going to read this passage. I never told you what it was. It's John chapter 5, all of it. So John chapter 5, verse 1. We'll go from John chapter 5, verse 1, all the way to verse 47, uh, the complete chapter. But it, again, is, is kind of narrative for the most part, so it should go kind of quickly. It says, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? I'll stop right here. Some of you, if you have King James or some of the other versions, you may have noticed that, that I didn't read verse 4. Um, it, it is not in the oldest of texts. It records a tradition that the Jews believed about this pool, that an angel came down and stirred the waters up, uh, and that the first person to get into the waters was healed. And, and that, is, that, is, that was a known Jewish tradition. Uh, verse 4 tells about that, but in the oldest manuscripts that they found, it's not in there. So, picking back up with verse 6, or verse 7. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now the day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. 
the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And the Father, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment." I'll point out right here because I didn't put anything in my notes about this. For Jesus, those that do good, that is equated with those that believe him, that believe his words. And those that do evil are those that reject him and reject his words. So it is very simple. For Jesus, good is believing him, evil is rejecting him. And everything else flows from that. All the good we do flows from our belief in Jesus. And all the evil that is done flows from a rejection of who Jesus is. And that's the reason that those that do receive judgment have it, because they have rejected Jesus. Verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father has sent me, um, and the Father who has sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. 
you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Okay. So we're going to start with this. We've got a sign at the beginning of this chapter. It is a lame man, or the lame man is healed. And so that's where we're going to begin. Now, when we begin this passage, we see that Jesus is once again headed to Jerusalem because of a feast. Now, when, when John says, at this, or after this, there was, uh, most of the time, that lets you know that there is a passage of time because in our last chapter, obviously, Jesus left Jerusalem for reasons. He left because John was arrested. He left because the Pharisees were after him. He, he, he left because there was now, it was now unpopular to be an unassociated rabbi teaching in those areas. So it wouldn't make sense for Jesus to run right back to Jerusalem unless there was something going on. And what we find out is that at this particular time, there was a passage of time. Um, it could be anywhere from six months to a year. Um, it's not recorded in John but this year is recorded, or this time is recorded, in the other three Gospels. Um, it's known as the year of obscurity, as far as John is concerned. Uh, but it is recorded, so we know that there is some time that passes before Jesus returns to Jerusalem. So, um, Jesus came to Jerusalem to keep a divine appointment that would lead to much trouble between him and the Jewish leaders. Um, the text does raise another question that was unanswered for quite some time because it, this pool had not been located. Uh, in 1888, uh, scholars identified this pool. Archaeologists uncovered a pool matching this description in the very location that John had given. Um, and now we know that as far back as the 5th century, uh, there was a church built over the pool to signify its importance. It was called the Church of St. Anne. Now, we got a couple of pictures. I just thought we'd put that up there. This is a, uh, a rendering. It's not a, a real picture. It's like a rendering of what it would have looked like. And so this pool, it would have had two parallel pools, and there would have been porticos or porches or, or colonnades all around it. One pool would be for women and one pool for, would be for men. And the, the features of this pool is that it was actually fed by a stream. And that stream would flow intermittently. And so when, when the stream would flow, it would trouble the waters. And, and that's where verse 4 comes in, where people believe that angels were coming down, stirring the water. The first person to get in got healed. Well, Jesus was there at that pool. And we're not told whether or not it was actually a... Um, uh, a day that it was being stirred, but Jesus was there to see it. Now, the next picture actually shows a more current view. Um, 
the thing about ancient cities in Jerusalem also is that they're built in layers. So they build right over top of history. They build right over top of what's going on. And so you have these churches, but you can kind of see those archways there. Those archways are part of the colonnades that would have been around the pool. So it kind of gives you a general idea that, that now it's just this deep hole in the ground. And obviously it's kind of dark, but um, that's what they're finding. They're currently finding what, what John described in his gospel. Now, for years, actually, people thought that this was more of a metaphorical pool or that, that John wrote way later or that the gospel of John was wrote way later and not by somebody from Jerusalem. But now we know for, you know, archaeologically, John knew what he was talking about. He was talking about a pool that he had seen, that he had been to. And so that helps us understand that the Bible, while it's not a history book, when it tells you about history, it is right. While the Bible's not a geography book, when it tells you about geography, it is right. And that's something that we can trust. Um, so Jesus is, is at this place on this day. And we don't know if it's because of the reputation of the man or because of Jesus's divine knowledge, um, but he knew about this crippled man and he kind of goes to, to seek him out. Um, the man has been crippled for 38 years and he didn't have anyone to help him. And, and, and before we really say, well, his friends are terrible because apparently his friends brought him to this place and then left him here and he's been there for, for a very long time. Um, if, if you're going to care for someone that's sick, that's not even your family member for 38 years, that would be a long time. And, and so he could not get to the waters when they were stirred before someone else got in there and either got healed or didn't get healed, but somebody else would get in there first. Um, and, and there would be a lots and lots and lots of people there. So Jesus asked the man if he wanted to be healed. And the man doesn't actually say, yes, sure, I'd love to be healed. He explains why he can't be healed because there's nobody to help him get down to the water when it is actually trouble. But his response indicates that he would very much like to be healed. Um, and so since it was impossible for the man to get to the pool, Jesus told the man to get up, take up his bed, and walk. This is something that, that Jesus does a couple of times we see throughout his ministry. And it, what's so amazing about the way that Jesus says this is it's, it's direct um, and, and it's like present tense, so it's like get up, start walking, and don't start, stop walking. Get up, pick up your bed, and don't put it back down again. Don't go back to that bed. Don't go back to that laying down. Get up and keep on walking. And so Jesus tells the man to do this. Now, um, we don't know why the man chose to obey Jesus. I mean, it's kind of like telling a blind man, look at this, you know, or, or, or telling somebody that's deaf, hear me when I say this. You tell a lame man, get up and walk, and he's like, well, yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to, you know, man with no hand, tell him to shake your hand. There are things that people can't do. Well, he told this man, get up, take up your bed and walk, and the man obeyed. He got up, he picked up his bed, and he began to walk. Now, what we know is that Jesus kind of slips away. He doesn't stay with the man for any time period. He just kind of slips away. So John adds this one little ominous note here that says that this, these events occurred on the Sabbath. Um, that's going to play major for the rest of the passage. But one thing that we should realize is that we are like this lame man. We are more helpless than we know. So the lame man was hoping, get back over here. The lame man was hoping that he could get to this water and then be healed. And that was the only way that he knew that he could be healed. So when Jesus asked the question, "Do you want to be healed?" he doesn't even know that Jesus is capable of doing such a thing. He just responds, I wish I could, but I can't. 
we are that helpless. And we don't know it. We don't always recognize it. But we are that helpless. We must believe Jesus and obey His Word if we want to experience His power in our lives. There are times that God displays His power among the unbelieving. But the vast majority of what God does, He does among those who believe on His name. And that's what we need to be about. That's how we need to live, is believing God. There's so many things that, that when we doubt that God can do something, we make a plan. The man didn't know that, that Jesus was going to heal him, so he had a plan. I need to get to the water. I don't know how. And so maybe he was begging, Jesus, help me get to the water. Who knows? But what we do know is that he had no concept of the power of God that was about to enter into his life. Never discount or discredit God in what he might do in your life. So because this happened on the Sabbath, it starts a series of troubles. Um, more troubles for the Pharisee than Jesus. Jesus can handle it just fine. But his authority and his position is challenged. So John does make that note about the miracle occurring on the Sabbath, and this looms large uh, as the healed man begins to make his way to the temple. Um, we don't know that he's going to worship. That's a nice thought, but he is seen around the temple area. That's what we know. The man is challenged by Jews almost right away, um, telling him that it is unlawful for him to carry his bed on the Sabbath. Now, it's at this point we need to be real clear about what the fourth commandment actually is. The fourth commandment tells us to remember the Sabbath, to keep it holy, and to do no labor. So three, three parts. Remember, you know, keep it holy, do no labor. So three things that we need to remember. Now that Jews had made hundreds of regulations to define what labor is so as not to work on the Sabbath. Now, isn't that just like people that are in charge to define what work actually is? That's what they do. They, they, they sit down and they write all these different things. Now, here's some fun things. A woman could not look in a mirror on the Sabbath. You want to know why? She might see a gray hair. And if she saw a gray hair, she would pull it out, and that counts as shearing. That was part of it. Now, you might say that, and there's a whole bunch of ridiculous ones. You might say, well, that's kind of overkill, and it definitely is overkill. So a man, for example, um, you can't drag a stick on the Sabbath because that would be considered plowing, and, and you're certainly not allowed to plow during that time. So anyway, you, if you ride your mule and you get to where you're going right at sundown, you were in this incredible dilemma because if you take the saddle off the mule, then that's work. But if you leave the saddle on the mule, then the mule's working. It's, it's all kinds of crazy trouble. And there were things that you couldn't do. Could, could, you, could you eat anything on the Sabbath that was, that was prepared on the Sabbath or got, was cooked on the Sabbath? All kinds of really ridiculous things. So here's what makes things complicated. They made breaking their regulations a capital offense. They could stone you for breaking their regulations on the Sabbath. Not necessarily God's law. What God said, remember, keep, and don't labor... They made all these other things up, and, and they could kill you for those things. That was where this was at. So the man, had just, the man Jesus had just healed was now in danger of being taken out and stoned to death because he had obeyed the command uh, to take up his bed and walk. You might ask, why was the man so willing to go find Jesus or, or, or whatever and then go run right back to the Jews and say, well, it was Jesus? Well, probably because he was under the threat of being stoned for carrying his bed. He was seen working on the Sabbath, and so because of that, he certainly um, was in that danger. 
Now, it's that we need to be very clear. Jesus never broke the fourth commandment, nor did he command anyone else to do so. But he had no regard for the Jewish regulations for it. He didn't care about that kind of stuff. Um, so other things, it, it, it's illegal to pick a head of grain. So remember the story where Jesus and his disciples, they go by, they just grab a, a grain and just kind of take what they can as they slide by, and they rub it in their hand, they blow the shaft away, and then they eat it. Well, all of those were separate violations of the Sabbath law according to the Jews. So Jesus had no regard whatsoever for their regulations, their, their sacred cows, so to speak. All he con was concerned with was the actual word of God. So that was the thing that we got to remember is that Jesus himself didn't care about those things, but he never broke the fourth commandment. Man is, uh, the man's unable to identify Jesus uh, until he sees him again later, but at that point he does go straight to the Jews. Now Jesus says something that's really, really intriguing here. He says, see, see that you're healed. So he's pointing out, hey, look, you're healed and you're still walking around. And uh, Jesus says, see to it that you don't sin so that nothing even worse happens to you. So it brings up the question, did the man do something to bring about his, uh, his, his calamity? Or was it because now that he's healed, he might go off and do something, be tempted to do something that he could, never could do before that would bring more harm or trouble on him? But any way you look at it, this is Jesus' kind of typical thing where he says, go and sin no more. Um, for him, you have now experienced the power of God in your life. Now, live a righteous life. Walk worthy of the power that has been placed in your life. That is the, the idea of what Jesus was saying. Now, Here's the thing that's really upsetting. The, G, the Jews were completely unmoved by the fact that a man crippled for 38 years was walking around, but they were ready to execute Jesus for performing the miracle. It was obviously a miracle that only God could do. It obviously changed this man's life for the good forever. All of that is lost on them. All they're worried about is that we now have something that we can pin on Jesus. Because here's the reality. From the moment that he stepped in that temple and began cleaning it out, they wanted to kill him. But they didn't have a law that he had broken up to this point. Now they could say, well, you broke the law because you healed on the Sabbath. Who would have wrote a law that would say, it is against the Sabbath to miraculously heal a man that's crippled? Who would have wrote that law? But they had it. They had something that they could hang on him. And so now they were seeking to kill him. It says that they, they were continuously persecuting him. So what you have to realize at this point, and we need to keep this in our heads as we keep going forward, is that there would have been guys following Jesus around, kind of heckling him, challenging him, and asking him questions, and paying attention. There probably would have been people writing down everything that he said just to make sure that if he ever made a mistake, they could just pile it on and pile it on and pile it on. We could see when Jesus is in his trial, they were listening, they were paying attention, and they were put, pouring things that they thought were evidence against him. They were pouring those on, trying to make it easy to get a conviction against Jesus. So we know that from this point on, people were going after Jesus. So the two things that the Jews did, one, they challenged Jesus' authority, authority over the Sabbath. Now Jesus answers this charge um, by stating that the Father is working, so he will work too. He goes on to talk about the fact that he sees what the Father's doing and he doesn't do anything that he doesn't see the Father doing. And so he makes it clear that he himself is working because God is also working. Now this enrages the Jews even more because Jesus claims equality with God, um, which in their eyes is blasphemy. We hear, my Father, Son of God, things like that. We think, yeah, absolutely. 
But for them, God was the holy other. He was separate. He was set apart. And, and, and yes, we were the children of God, the children of Israel. We were those things. But we were not the son of God the way Jesus claimed to be. And so he was claiming equality with God. Now, there are people that read this book. They read the Bible and they say Jesus is not God, that he is not equal with God. You can't read it and say that Jesus didn't think he was God. Now, you might say, well, Jesus was wrong, but that's a whole other can of worms there. But what we know is that when, when Jesus says these things, he is claiming that he stands on the same footing as God, that he is God. Come to this earth to save us from our sins. The second thing, the Jews challenged Jesus' position as God's equal. Jesus explains that his relationship with the Father is so in tune that he does nothing except what the Father is already doing. The Father loves the Son so much um, that at that time, he was about to do even greater marvels and miracles in the land, uh, in the sight of mankind, so that Jesus could be known to be truly sent from above. So Jesus is giving life, to anyone who believes in him. That's what he's talking about. I'm going to give life. And so what, what he's talking about there more is probably spiritual life. He gives life to any who will. I give spiritual life to anyone who will believe at this point. Jesus is the righteous judge appointed by God. He mentions that at this point. So the irony of this is that the Jews were attempting to sit in judgment over Jesus um, when he is their true judge. Because the Jews are so resistant to Jesus' teaching, he declares the gospel to them as simply as absolutely possible. And that's in verse 24. I just want to read that one more time just so you see it. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. So whoever hears and believes Jesus' words immediately has eternal life will never receive the judgment and pass from death to life. These are all present words. What that means, in the original language, what that means is that when we believe Jesus, we are right then given eternal life. We are right then excused from that negative judgment. We are right then passing from death into life. These are present words. These are happening right now. So if you ever wanted to find another passage that helps you believe that when you are saved, you are saved to the uttermost by God himself, here is your passage. Jesus says, right then, you believe in me? Right then you are saved. Right then you have eternal life. Right then you pass from judgment. Right then you pass from death to life. And so this is a wonderful thing for that. So to prove the claim that this, the spiritually dead are raised to life by the gospel, Jesus will soon be raising the physically dead. We know that with Lazarus. We know that Jesus will do that. So, here's the important thing, and here's the mistake the Jews were making. The deadliest mistake that we can ever make is to doubt the power of Jesus to save and give life. The Jews doubted it. They thought he was just a man. They thought that he was just a regular guy. Now, here's the thing. When someone walks into this building, we think they're a regular person. But hopefully, if they began to do wonders, if they made the lame to walk, if they made you know, the blind to see, if they rose people from the dead, hopefully at some point we would figure out there's something different about this fellow. But they continued to seek to kill him. It wasn't because they didn't understand. It was stubbornness. It was a refusal. It was refusal. We need to remember that. So to... To kind of finish up this, Jesus gives 
five witnesses or describes five witnesses to his work and to his person to prove that he truly does have authority on the Sabbath and he truly is equal with God. So he continues to answer these objections uh, the Jews are by, they have by providing five witnesses to his identity. In verse um, 30, Jesus says this, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So Jesus' justice is not personally motivated or swayed by popularity. It comes directly from the Father above. So these Jews that were accusing Jesus, they had a, they had a reason to accuse him. And, and it is the oldest reason that you can really find why one person hates another person. Money. Think about it. When Jesus went and cleansed the temple, he shut down their part of their economy. He hit them in the pocketbook. And you know what? He, he could have disagreed with the, with the way they were doing things, and they'd have had a conversation. He could have disagreed with, with all kinds of things. He could have taken them to task on some of their regulations and traditions and things like that. They might would have still had a conversation with him. But you start taking their money away from them, and they're ready to kill you. And that was where the Pharisees were. That's where these Jews were. They were ready to kill Jesus, and it had to do with money. So their judgment was seeking their own. Their judgment was for their ambition and for their purposes. And because of that, their judgment was false. The claims that, that Jesus makes are not to be made or not made by him alone, but they are made by his fivefold witness as well. So what Jesus is doing, he's saying, hey, I've got witnesses. I've got the people that are backing up what I say. So in verse 32, Jesus says, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears is true. He goes on to say that this is God a little bit later. So the first one, uh, the Father, is the another who bears witness about Jesus. God himself is declaring that Jesus is God. Now, we know this. We can see this also when Jesus is baptized. When the voice comes down from heaven and says, This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. That is God himself speaking. In verse 33, Jesus mentions John the Baptist. John the Baptist bears witness about Jesus. Uh, for a time, the Jews did rejoice in John the Baptist. They rejoiced in his message and what he was doing. Remember, there had been no prophet for 400 years, and he appeared to be a prophet, so they were happy with that. Um, but by this time, it definitely seems that they were finished with John the Baptist. They despised him and doubted his witness about Jesus because Jesus said, you had sent people to John asking John about me, and he told you, and now you're even doubting that. Jesus' own works bear witness about him. Um, Jesus did not come in, the wor come in word only, but also with great power that was witnessed by the very people that were seeking to destroy him. There stood a man that had been lame for 38 years, a lifetime, and he was standing. He is part of the testimony. He is part of the witness of who Jesus really is. But these men did not care about that. You see, they didn't care about the truth. They didn't care about the evidence. All they cared about was taking Jesus down because he was against them. The Holy Scriptures bear witness about Jesus. Now, of all the things to get wrong, the Scriptures for the Jews is, is an alarming thing. They studied the Scriptures day and night. That was true of them. There may have been a lot of things they did wrong, but they definitely studied the Scriptures, but they missed what they were actually saying. The poets and the prophets, so if you read the Proverbs and you read the Psalms and you read the prophets, they cried out for a Messiah with extremely specific attributes. 
both in the Psalms and in the, in the uh, prophets, you see very specific prophecies about Jesus. And Jesus met every one of those requirements. But the Jews couldn't see it. They couldn't see who he was. Moses himself even bears witness to Jesus for who he is. The laws point to Jesus, but also Moses himself wrote about the Messiah and what he would be like, and Jesus fulfilled all of those prophecies, but the Jews could not, it's not that they didn't understand its meaning, they absolutely rejected Jesus. So Jesus came to this earth with purpose, power, and proof. Jesus came with proof. That's an important thing that we need to remember is that he did not come and say, believe on me and not give a reason. He gave a reason. So for those even to this day that are rejecting Jesus, they are not rejecting what they do not know. They are rejecting what they know. They are rejecting truth. You know, we see this every single day of the week. We see this. The world rejects truth. The world hates truth. And certainly Jesus is truth and people reject him. I believe that if we miss this salvation, it is not because of something lacking in Jesus. It is because of something lacking in us. So the conclusion is this. It has been made clear to us all that Jesus is the one sent by God to deliver us from sin. He has the signs, the teachings, the witness of the authority, of his authority and his position. We will not face judgment because we lack evidence. We will only face judgment if we lack faith. Jesus has put the gospel before us plainly. And I'm going to read this one more time. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Now we know we must simply believe. That's what's left to us. We know we must believe. Now I mentioned battles at the beginning and there are battles to fight. But the most important battle we ever fight is fighting that stubbornness. Fighting that resistance in us but also in those around us. Because we're going to see that. We're going to see people that resist Jesus. They are not resisting Jesus because they don't know. Once we tell them about Jesus, He has provided the evidence once we tell them about Jesus, they're resisting because of stubbornness, because of pride, because they don't want to bow down before the Lord. That's the fight. That is the fight that matters the most. That's the fight that we must try our best to fight, is to tell people about Jesus and help them understand that he, He's made all the evidence plain. It is only about faith. It's not about knowledge. Ultimately, it's about faith. Let's have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this time to gather together. And I, I thank you for this, this chapter that we've just studied in the life of Jesus because he made it plain. Yes, we have to have faith, but that faith is not blind. We are not asked to believe only in things unseen. There is so much that was seen. We know there's still an element of mystery in the faith, but those things that save us were done for all people to see. You publicly displayed Jesus. His work, His sacrifice, His resurrection. It has been seen, it is known. I pray that we can believe. And not only us, but those that we carry this message to as well must believe. There's all kind of battles raging around and, and we might have to join a few of those, but certainly the one we must join is the battle 
for the souls of mankind. We must go out armed with the gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ, the evidences that he provided, and we must tell people about him. I pray that we do that. We use the freedoms that we have in this country to be evangelists, to be your witnesses, to proclaim your word in this world. We don't know how long we're going to have that freedom. We don't know how long it's going to be free to do that. There may be a cost at some point. I pray that we go ahead and start now and that maybe, just maybe, there are some who will believe and those will receive eternal life and that's what we're working for. Thank you for providing that for us and for those that will believe. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.